You're listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. So today we're going to talk about part two of Interview with the Abortionist. Part two of the epic saga. Yes. So it's been interesting because Interview with the Abortionist was written when? The Interview with the Abortionist was written last fall. So fall of... No, it was actually written fall of 2018. That's what I say, 2018. So it was right after we interviewed him. We interviewed him in October of 2018. And who we're talking about, I can't, I can't assume that everyone knows who we're talking about. That's so we are talking about Ulrich George Klopfer. He George was, himself. He was a local abortionist here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we felt prompted by the Lord to share a story of how our community shut this man down here locally and made Fort Wayne, Indiana, the second largest abortion desert in the United States. And it's interesting to note, too, we were talking uh, this morning about the things that we observed about George, even in our brief interaction with him when we went in to talk to mm-hmm. him and walking into his clinic. Now his we horde. In, into his horde. Right. Describe that for people. Well, it was it was really interesting because if you've never been around a hoarder and you are you're a little you're a little taken back if you walk in to someone who um, is is mentally unstable in that way. And what we've found is a lot of a lot of hoarders, you know, there's something traumatic. They've experienced some sort of trauma in their life that's likely more severe than most any of us have. So they kind of cling to their stuff. And when we walked into the clinic in Inwood Drive to interview him, which is where Interview with the Abortionist came out of, right? Um, it was just uh, boxes everywhere, trash, paperwork, just... That was one of the first things that both of us said when we when we left was, wow, that guy's a hoarder. Let me make a side note here. We're recording in our home studio with the windows open because it's 72 degrees and beautiful. And so if you hear the sirens or the neighbor's cars or our children, that's why. But yeah, it was um, it was clutter just when we went in. It was very dark, very cold. Cold, dark, yeah. And you could see that it was there was just chaos in there now it wasn't stacked all the way to the ceiling or anything but we weren't he didn't let us go we walked through the lobby and back into the break room and that's where we conducted the interview but he didn't let us go anywhere else right and so and to finish off if you don't know who Ulrich Klopfer is uh last year he died early September and then as his family was cleaning out the hoard at his home which was floor to ceiling Throughout the entire home, mm-hmm. um, except for the one room, his wife. We didn't even know he was married. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was married, had a wife, and her room was immaculate. But regardless, um, when the family was cleaning out the hoard after his death in early September, they found over 2,000 fetal remains in the garage of his home. Right. And we've talked about this. I don't know if I've been, if any of you have ever watched the the series Hoarders. There's the, we've been watching it on, I think, Amazon, Hoarders Buried Alive. And it occurred to us that since this happened with George and everyone's been, they, I think everyone has blunted their swords trying to figure out why did he, why did he take the babies? Why did he hoard mm-hmm. babies? 
why the babies, why the babies, why the babies. And when you stop thinking of it in, in pro-life terms mm -hmm. for a second and think of it in terms of a mental illness. Right. George had a mental illness. He was a hoarder. Well, and much like Gosnell. You remember right. that film Gosnell that came out and we saw we saw his house right. and I mean, just clutter and hoarding. Right. So he was he was an abortionist mm -hmm. and that has its own mental Sickness. disease along with it, but mm -hmm. but to really get to the bottom of the question of why did he hoard the babies? It wasn't about the babies. It was about the hoard. Right. It was about the stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you want to understand that, you have to detach from that it was the issue, the issue of the, the that it was babies. Issue. Because when you see what his house looked like, it was a hoarder that was living there. Oh, yeah. And so to him, I don't think it necessarily was about the babies. It was it was about his stuff. He How just, it made him feel, because that's what we've learned watching that show is usually people who hoard, they, they purchase things, they're impulsive because it helps them a lot. It, it, it gives them, it makes them feel good. Right. You know, it covers the pain of whatever it is. And they never get rid of any that, of it. That's right. And they never get rid of it. And so the, the second part of his fetal remains hoard is where, where they found it was in the trunk of one of his hoarded cars. Mm -hmm. He had... I, we don't even know how many cars he had, but they, it wasn't like he, nine. yeah, it wasn't like he was like, he was keeping a, a garage full of Ferraris. I mean, these were, these were old, dilapidated, junky cars, mostly Mercedes that were run down and they, they should have been taken to the junkyard, but mm -hmm. he didn't throw anything away. Right. And so that's where they found this. So to, to understand that and. You have to look at it as a hoarder. And what you said was that when you watch these shows and you and when you've dealt with hoarders, there's always some kind of trauma mm -hmm. that triggers it, which leads us into what we are about to discover here as we go into part two. Right. There was this story floating around that I had heard many times about George... Uh, doing abortions as some kind of revenge for World War II. And it was, it, I had dismissed it mostly, not because I thought everybody was lying to me, but you hear stories like this and you think, okay, well, I, that's interesting, but it's very fanciful and uh, seems too exotic to, to really be true. And turns so, out, turns out, so going into this, we didn't, we didn't, go into it with any presuppositions about that. We just went in to let him talk. And what we were about to discover was the trauma, his trauma, his yeah. trauma. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of his mental state really had to do with his childhood. Yeah, it definitely did. It doesn't excuse what he did by any means and, no, and no. not trying to excuse it, but there is a serious sickness there. Uh, mental health issue. Right, right. And it's a, 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 one of the things we talk about all the time is there's a difference between excuses and reasons, you know, excuses are, here's the reason why it's not my fault or why it's not somebody's fault. Mm -hmm. We, we didn't look for excuses mm -hmm. for him. He made a lot of excuses. Oh my word. We wanted the reasons because we mm -hmm. wanted to understand. And this is a big part of understanding that, 
is he, he was a very complex man at the, on the other hand, it's not that difficult to understand. Right. He had several mental disorders going on and he just managed to hide it pretty well. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's listen to part two of interview with the abortionist. Interview with the abortionist, part two. We didn't tell very many people about our appointment to interview abortionist George Klopfer for our feature documentary film, Inwood Drive. But the few people we did tell about it were universally shocked by it. Half were shocked that he had agreed to even talk with us. The other half were shocked that we were even giving him the time of day. I would have to say that for my own part, I was kind of in both camps. Transparency is difficult, especially in nonfiction storytelling. There's always the temptation to just fabricate the elements you're missing based upon loosely gathered information and conjecture rather than actual firsthand accounts. Of course, you don't tell yourself you're fabricating things. You use creative language like filling in the blanks or taking some creative license. The problem is it's still inserting what you want to happen where something may or may not have happened. I hear people try to justify it all the time. Well, how do we know it didn't happen that way? (laughs) Well, simple. You don't know it happened that way or at all. In other words, you're making it up and that's called a lie. Former CBS investigative journalist turned independent investigative journalist Cheryl Atkinson, in her book Stonewalled, described herself and her role as a journalist as being necessarily politically agnostic. And I like that term a lot. In other words, she keeps her political opinions to herself and doesn't let her personal viewpoints on individuals or subject matter affect her objectivity with a story. It's a lonely place to be when people know that you're only driven by the truth. I dare say it makes a lot of people nervous to even be around you because they know they're not going to be able to contain you or steer you in a certain direction. Friends or not, if you're hiding something from a truth seeker, they're really not going to cut you any slack. They only want the truth. I make it a point in my work to remain politically agnostic as well. Anyone who knows me or even follows my work will be able to quickly ascertain where I stand on most things, but I purposely don't push parties or platforms or politicians. I push truth wherever that leads me. Sometimes my digging makes even my friends nervous. Pursuing an interview with the abortionist himself made even some of our financial supporters nervous, but not to make the effort would be dishonest to telling a thoroughly researched story. Especially when you're telling a story that largely centers around one person, you must talk to that person, if at all possible. Anything less is disingenuous at best, if not propagandist in nature. You could say I have a unique perspective on the abortion issue since I was born in 1973, the same year the U.S. Supreme Court made it legal to dismember me with surgical instruments and pull me out of my mother's womb in pieces. I was also born in the state of New York, the same state that just made it legal to kill babies like me even after we're born. To be going in to have a civil discourse with a man who had been murdering 
my generation, since he could do it and not be imprisoned, gave me a particular sort of creepiness that seemed to run up and down my spine for days. Here I was, getting ready to go in and talk to a man who no doubt would have murdered me for money in 1973 if I were but part of another family and another life. Why do I even care to give this man an opportunity to speak to me? I would think to myself over and over again. I know all I need to know about him from decades of publicly available information in the press. He's denied tens of thousands of children their own voices. Why does he now get to be heard? I would console myself with the reminder of whose film this is in the end, and who gets to make those editorial decisions as to who stays in the final cut and who doesn't. To say that I was going in to let him tell his side of the story would be wrong. I already know his side of the story. He's an abortionist. He murders babies. What I don't know is what makes a man like him do what he does without remorse. If I can get to at least a basic understanding of that, I can tell a truthful story. Every villain needs a backstory, even if it's George Klopfer. The morning of our interview, Amber and I got up together at our usual time, around 3.30 a.m., to read scripture together and to pray. We're both early risers because we found with three young children that if we don't take our time together in the morning to be with each other and the Lord, it tends to not happen later. We read together and prayed together, and particularly we prayed for George. We had no idea who we were going to encounter that day, only that we were talking to a man who has been deceived his entire life, literally doing the work of Satan. We asked the Lord to go before us and surround us as we entered this gateway of darkness at the very edge of hell itself. When we pulled up to the door, his crashed up Mercedes sat out front. Even though his practice at this particular location had been defunct since the end of 2013, George still owned the clinics that he operated in Fort Wayne, South Bend, and Gary. But as far as we could tell, the Fort Wayne Clinic was the only one that he still visited weekly. Driving in on a Wednesday night, sleeping in the clinic, and then leaving again on Thursday morning. You see, Thursdays used to be his procedure days. And the fact that he still came in and slept in a clinic that had been closed since the end of 2013 is nothing short of macabre, especially when you see the filth that surrounds it and indwells it. We walked up to the door and I knocked. There was no answer and no response or movement from inside the dark clinic. We looked at each other and shrugged. I knocked again. This time I pounded on the glass. I could already feel my blood pressure starting to rise. This is going to be over before it even began, I thought to myself. Maybe he's changed his mind, I said as I looked at Amber, admittedly hopeful that we could just turn around and leave. Amber suggested I try to call him. I found him once more on my phone and dialed his number. It rang, it rang, it rang. Voicemail. I hung up. Amber stepped forward and pounded even harder on the glass door. Suddenly, we saw movement from inside. It was George. I had never met him before, but I had seen plenty of pictures of him. He shuffled over to the door and squinted through the glass. Morning, George, I said to him through the thick glass door. 
We had an appointment this morning at 9 a.m. to talk to you about our documentary film. He looked like he had literally just woken up. As he acknowledged us and unlocked the door, I reached out my hand to shake his and introduced Amber and myself once more. You want to talk here or sit down at the table? With his thick German accent, he was surprisingly cordial to us. I could sense that he was a bit nervous with us. Individually, Amber and I tend to have a tendency to do that to people. Together, intent on a mission and surrounded by prayer, we must have freaked him out. We weren't there to try to intimidate, but we were there for the truth. And neither of us was leaving that place until we got it. As we all sat down in what looked like the break room, Amber set her phone on the table and started the recorder. You don't mind if we record this, do you? George just looked and shrugged and said, no, it's fine. I explained the film premise to him once more, then looked at him and said, so tell me about yourself. How did you get to where you are now? In the years leading up to this film, I had heard what I thought were probably exaggerated stories about him and his coming out of Germany as a child. One of the harder to believe stories floating around had him surviving an allied bombing raid as a child in World War II and later swearing to kill as many American babies as he could as revenge for what he saw and endured. I had largely dismissed it as biased conjecture, passed on through the ranks of pro-life picketers through the years. So many stories like that are, they're like urban myths, fabricated out of loosely gathered information and they're nearly impossible to verify. You know you're hearing a red flag story when it starts out with, I once heard that, fill in the blank. But I had come in with an open mind to listen to his life story. I knew that no one had likely bothered to even listen to him tell his story. Even those liberal media members through the years who covered up his crimes while they supported his practice. If there's one thing I know about people who have lived a life of notoriety, it's that they believe the world needs to hear what they have to say. There was a pause. I leaned back in my chair and looked at George. I want to hear your story, George. When did you start down this career path? Another pause as George looked at me over the top of his glasses. Then at Amber. He let out a long sigh. Never could we have imagined the sad and twisted life story that was about to unfold to us over the next hour. To my shock and horror, it all began for him at the age of six, living in Dresden, Germany, living through the Allied firebombing raids of 1945. Thanks for listening to part two of Interview with the Abortionist. If you want to listen to the full audiobook, it's at fearlessfeatures.org. But Mark, you wanted to add something? I did. The, the, what, what would... What I described in there, talking about Cheryl Atkinson, and if any of you are familiar with Cheryl Atkinson, she used to be with CBS News. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a, she's written several books, but her first book is really, really good. It's called Stonewalled. And she's one of the reporters that uh, the uh, Obama administration uh, spied on, actually broke mm -hmm. into her computer because she was investigating uh, and getting too close to a lot of uh, explosive things, uh, back in that era. But the, one of the things that I picked up from her that I, that I worked into interview with the abortionist is the idea of being politically agnostic. And I, 
I, I just want to point out with that, that it's not about being, um, agnostic in the religious sense of the word. It's about not making something about politics or party. Mm -hmm. If you are pro-life, you know, you know, the politics involved and you know where the parties stand on things. But when we did Inwood Drive, we purposely didn't talk about party because we didn't want it to be a quote unquote political film. Mm -hmm. It's become a political issue, but uh, it shouldn't be. It should be just a right and wrong issue. Well, we see it becoming a political issue. We can't even run ads on on social media because it gets flagged as a political issue because it's about abortion. Right. You know, so. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that, you know, when you hear social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Google that they, that they, that they're uh, slanted to the left politically. And and a lot of times people don't want to believe it. It's Mm -hmm. true. It is absolutely true. They do not want you talking about this. And a film like Inwood Drive has been very difficult so far to market. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because you, the, you're like walking through a minefield. You have to very carefully step around. Now, if I put this word in the copy and take this word out, uh-huh. then it might pass. And you're just, you're, you're never sure who you're dealing with on the other end of this. So, right. you know, keep us in your prayers. Yeah. So we will all add a link to Cheryl Atkinson's book in the show notes, and you can listen to the rest of the audiobook, the full-length audiobook, at fearlessfeatures.org. The movie is also available streaming on demand, and pre-order DVD sales are available either at fearlessfeatures.org or inwooddrivemovie.com. Tune in next week for Thanks, part three. Thanks, guys. <laughs>